From the Relationship Center, I'm psychotherapist, couples counselor, and dating coach Jessica Engel, and this is I Love You Too, a show about how to create and sustain meaningful relationships. I'm dating and relationship coach Josh Van Vliet. On today's episode, we're going to talk about why you rarely feel a spark and what to do about it. We're so happy you're here, and please remember that this show is not a substitute for a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Welcome, dear listener. We're so thrilled you're joining us today for, I think, what's a very important conversation about uh, what to do if you don't feel the spark or if you rarely feel the spark. This is common for a number of reasons that we're going to dig into today and can be very confusing and painful for folks. So if you've spent a lot of time, you've been on a lot of dates and you're wondering, why do I never really feel this enigmatic spark with someone uh, or it seems to only show up very rarely for you. I think this is an episode that that may be really helpful for you. Yes. Before we get started, if you love our show, well, we love you too and want to be in touch between episodes. To get more free dating, relationship, and social anxiety advice, please go to relationshipcenter.com slash newsletter. Okay, let's get started. All right. So why don't we just dive in here. Mm-hmm. first? We, we say this term spark as if this is a thing that means something, right. but maybe we should go in. What, what is even a spark? What, a, what does that mean? People use it in so many different ways. Right. Well, and maybe we should just say that in this episode, what we're talking about is a spark in dating. Sure. Right. So there's a lot, we work with a lot of people who come and say like, I just, I'm going on all these dates and I just don't feel a spark for anyone. So in terms of what a spark is, you know, it's a pretty subjective term, but it's basically something where it feels like maybe there's some attraction, maybe there's some sort of je ne sais quoi, some sort of chemistry that's very hard to put words to, but there's just a sense of an extra charge. And I think a lot of people use the term spark to indicate that there's something more than friendship present. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, I want to spend more time with this person yeah, maybe there is some attraction there. Maybe your your blood quickens a little bit when you lock eyes with them. Maybe you feel that like kind of butterflies in your stomach mm-hmm. kind of feeling. Sometimes can come come along with what people describe as spark. Absolutely. Also, blood blood quickening <laughs> is an amazing phrase, <laughs> and I feel like it's from a Jane Austen book. <laughs> My blood quickened. <laughs> My pulse throbbed as we locked eyes across the room. (laughs) Yes. So blood quickening um, is one physical sign of a spark potentially. Mm -hmm. There's, yeah, butterflies in the stomach, impulse to get closer, maybe feeling turned on. Mm -hmm. I think there's also sort of emotional and mental sides to the spark for some people. Emotional is like elation, excitement, really feeling at home or feeling deeply connected. Um, and then on on the mental side of things, maybe a spark uh, looks like imagining a future together, seeing yourselves getting married or, you know, fantasizing about just physically being closer, kissing, having sex. I love that you named all these different aspects, emotional, mental, as well as the physical, because it really is a multidimensional thing that we're talking about here, attraction has so many different components to it. We Sometimes I think it's it, it's easy to think it's simple. It's either I'm attracted or I'm not. Mm-hmm. And it's it, there's so much more in it. 
Yes. So I love that you're naming these pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and aside from, you know, it's a little bit hard to really describe the spark. I can say that there's probably a number of things that contribute to a spark, Mm -hmm. including like physical attraction. We might call that passionate love, which is another sort of more scientific term for lust. Mm -hmm. There's pheromones. There's internalized messages from culture about what's attractive. There's love bombing, intermittent reinforcement we've talked about on the show here repetition compulsion, you know, all sorts of things can can really contribute to what a spark is. So some of the things you're naming here seem like sweet and good things. And some of them seem like not as <laughs> right. sweet and good things. <laughs> Love bombing, Love intermittent bombing, reinforcement. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, I just, I think that's important to highlight because as you, when we think about, oh, we, we want to feel a spark in dating, you may feel a spark sometimes, but not necessarily for a reason that's healthy or like is actually a good relationship for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is where this can be kind of a, a an aha moment for some people when they realize, oh, a spark may not always be good. I think that in our society, we're really given that kind of love at first sight story. And it's like the more sparks there are, somehow the more faded the relationship is. And um, it's meant to be. Right. Yeah. Right. The the powers that be have intervened and the stars have aligned. And yeah, I think from what we've seen with, with our clients, it's a good amount of the time that spark, especially for people who have trauma in their background, that's a recreation of something that you maybe don't want to actually live through again, but it gets sort of wrapped up in this story of the mythical love at first sight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That leads me to a question, which is, given that it could be all these different things, some of which we may actually not want to recreate, should there be a spark in dating? Or like, is that a useful thing to look at or look for? Right. Or is it, you know, is it okay to not feel a spark sometimes? Right. Yeah. All very good questions. So a spark doesn't predict long-term compatibility or the health of a relationship. Okay. I think for some people it can predict some compatibility, particularly if they do have more of a secure background, but there's really not necessarily a strong connection between how much you spark with someone and um, the viability of a connection. So if you're dating in order to find a healthy, long-lasting relationship, an immediate spark definitely isn't necessary. And for some people, like we've mentioned, it can actually be a red flag. If you're dating just because you want to experience intense attraction or sparks, then yes, that's what you should be looking for. Great. Go for it. Have fun. Um, And just know that, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be there right up top for you to find a really wonderful relationship. I love that you named not necessarily right up top. Mm -hmm. I think that points to that kind of intense affection and care and, and love for someone and attraction can grow over time. Yes. That if it's not, you didn't lock eyes and, you know, fireworks went off the first time you saw each other, that doesn't mean it's a doomed relationship. Right. Absolutely. A lot of very happy long-term couples, they report that their attraction really grew over time, very kind of slow and steady and continues to grow over the years. It's very common in, in healthy, mature love. Which is beautiful and goes against the I think, stereotype we have about long-term relationships that they get stale or, right. you know, attraction wanes over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, in fact, the opposite can be the case. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I have a spicy question for you, Josh. Ooh. Mm. How much of a spark did you feel on our first date? Ooh. Oh. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I feel like there was, I mean, our first date was on video. Mm-hmm. And I think there was like a quiet excitement. Mm-hmm. I don't think there, there, you know, there have been other first dates that I've had in the past where it was a little bit more like, wah. Mm-hmm. Wah, meaning like 10? Like potentially, yeah, like a yeah. nine or a 10. And those were often not good relationships for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think what I experienced was that that spark kind of grew over our first three or four dates in this very, and still I think is growing, mm-hmm. um, but like really blossomed in those first few dates of like, oh, I'm seeing more potential. Oh, I see this like sweeter connection developing into like, oh, this is great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, I think it grew over our first few dates. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that was my experience too. Yeah. I would say on our first date, uh, towards the beginning of the date, I was like, maybe at like a four out of 10. Mm-hmm. And then over that date, maybe got to like a five, five and a half. And then it just kind of kept going up every date. Yeah. Until, yeah, about the third or fourth date, it was like eight, nine, 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, coming back to what you're saying, you know, a spark for a lot of people does ultimately need to be there yeah. if we're talking about attraction. Right. That's a very important and a lot of happy long-term couples, you know, their sexual satisfaction is a big part. It's actually, you know, research shows those two things are deeply connected, how satisfied you are in your sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. So definitely up top here, I want to be really clear that we are not uh, suggesting that you should never feel a spark or that a spark (laughs) is always a bad thing. We're not saying go into a relationship in which you feel no attraction and just (laughs) stay with it forever. (laughs) Do not, do not, do not. But yeah, I think that um, leaving space for the possibility that a spark will emerge over time is a great wise way to approach dating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gives you possibilities that you might miss otherwise for some great connection. Yeah. So is this a good time to turn towards uh, why you might not feel the spark? Yes. Because I know you've got a number of reasons that we're going to go through today because there are a lot of different reasons why people might not feel that spark very often or at all yes. while dating and what to do about it will depend on why. Mm-hmm. So it's really good to kind of split some of these out and really get into some of the nuances here. Absolutely. I know the first one that you talk about is something called that you call the sex in the city fallacy. The sex in the city fallacy. Will you, will you tell us about that? I will. And I'm going to start each of these with the tell. Okay, great. Meaning how should how would you know if you were if this was part of what's happening for you around the spark? Love that. Yeah, so we're so we're going to start with the tell and then I'll tell you a little bit about a little bit more about the, each of these reasons and then we'll go into how to address them. Okay. Perfect. So in terms of the sex in the city fallacy, the tell that this might be operating for you is that you expect to feel attracted to most of the people you go out with. When you aren't attracted to those you date, you wonder what's wrong with you, them, or modern dating and singles in general. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the sex in the city fallacy, I imagine that brings up various images for you. I love that show. It was great. Right? remember watching that. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think that it was kind of a groundbreaking show because it showed four women, both their friendships, but also 
all of their dating and sexual experiences mm-hmm. living in the city. So I think it, it kind of created this picture of a world where when you're single and really dating the way you're supposed to, you're meeting people you're attracted to all the time. All the time. All the time. Yeah. There's just sort of a seemingly endless glut of extremely attractive cosmopolitan people. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and you just run into them random places and yeah. just bump into people at the bookshop or whatever. And Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that kind of media has really given us a skewed idea of dating. Mm-hmm. And for some people, they can just really expect they're going to you know, find a lot of attractive people to date or that most of the people they go out with, they're going to be, they're going to have a spark with, Mm -hmm. right? I think that what's really more often true is it takes quite a few dates for a lot of people to find someone that they're really genuinely sparking with. Mm. So not just, you know, one out of every two dates you feel a spark. Like there's for some people, they need to go on 20 dates to find someone, maybe even more than that. So I think that this is one that is really about mindset, right? And happy to go into how to address this particular fallacy. Yeah, well, just to summarize, I'm hearing it's like, this is about adjusting our expectations to what is the actual probable normal baseline, we could say, for life and for most of us most of the time. And if you're looking, you're expecting it's going to be all the time and it's not happening, that can be pretty frustrating. Uh, if you're like, oh no, this is what's normal. Like, okay, I'm, I might find a spark every few dates or every 10 or 15 dates. Right. And then it's like, great, I found one. Yay. Yes. Rather than, oh no, what's wrong with me or them or dating. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about how to address this. I mean, you've already kind of named it. So set realistic expectations, recognize that going on a dozen, maybe more dates and only finding one person you're like really sparking with. That's normal, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For that reason, treat dating as a marathon, not a race. So really develop a dating strategy that supports a sustainable pace, Mm self-care. And then this last one, (laughs) i I need a new title for this. So maybe you can help me, Josh. Qualify your leads. (laughs) (laughs) So qualify your leads is marketing speak for you want to make sure that you're, you have a process set up so that you are getting the most ideal client coming to you to work with you. Yeah. You want to make sure it's a good fit between you and them or as, as good a potential fit as you can before you actually take the time to go on a date with them. Right. Right. So coming back to dating, thank you, there's going to be ways to filter people who aren't a fit perhaps sooner so that you're not going on, say, a three-hour expensive date with absolutely every person. Which is going to leave you exhausted. Exactly. burnt out from dating and saying, screw this. Right. Yeah, so some examples of how you might qualify your leads. Uh, One, name deal breakers in your profile. Mm -hmm. You can do that in a very positive way. But that's a great way to filter out people who just aren't going to be a fit for you. Yeah. You could even say something like, I'm looking for someone who is a big yes to marriage, monogamy, and kids, <laughs> if those are things that are important to you. And um, that will attract people who are, are into that <laughs> and, and weed out the people who aren't. That's right. That's right. Josh is very 
acutely um, <laughs> quoting one of the first lines in my profile that good. he swiped right on, um, which was a big, I think, shift for me in my search was I was willing to be really transparent about what I wanted. Yeah. So naming deal breakers in your profile, asking values-based questions when you message, when you're on dates. So you can really get to know somebody, not just on the surface level, not just what did they do this weekend, but what do they really genuinely value in life mm-hmm. so that you can determine, are they a good fit? Yeah. And then doing things like going, uh, having a phone call first or a video date first. I know a lot of people are burnt out from video dating from the pandemic and it's a really great way to get a sense of whether uh, meeting up in person is worth both of your time. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are each different ways to, did you come up with a different title for this? Qualify your leads. <laughs> Only go on dates with people you're actually excited about. Very good. A little less pithy. but <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We'll have to figure out what the acronym is. <laughs> yeah, this was a huge part of my dating process too. I remember going through this process of, of dating and and realizing I could tell when I was genuinely excited about a profile because there was a different experience I had somatically. There was mm-hmm. like a little bit of like, a, oh, oh I'm, is almost like a little bit of a spark, even just from reading the profile mm-hmm. that was like, oh, there's something about this that I'm genuinely interested in getting to know this person. Not just like, well, they seem cute and maybe we'd like, I don't know. Right. I'll just, I'll message them because... I'm supposed to send a lot of messages. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was really important for me, learning to tune into that experience for myself and really only message those people. Even if it meant I was sending fewer messages overall and going on fewer dates overall, I ended up going on dates that were a much better fit and I was less exhausted. Yes. So you're saying we should actually call this the Josh Van Vliet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> Good. So so that's the sex in the city fa- fallacy. Yes. And uh, and the the solution is qualify your leads or only go on dates with people that you're genuinely interested in. Right. AKA the Josh Van Fleet. <laughs> <laughs> Not calling it that. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, let's go on to number two. <laughs> which is Asexuality. Yes, asexuality. Tell tell me more about asexuality. Okay, so I'm going to give some tells. I want you to know up top here, asexuality is a vast, vast orientation. So these tells are not going to capture everything. Mm -hmm. But some potential tells are you've rarely or never felt attracted to other people, which is not the same as not thinking that other people are beautiful. Mm -hmm. Another one is feeling confused when others talk about who's hot or not. Mm-hmm. and feeling bored by conversations about sex and romance. And a third is only feeling sexual attraction after an emotional bond is formed. Mm, okay. Okay. So asexuality, this is a sexual orientation defined by limited or no sexual attraction to individuals of any gender. Okay. Okay. Keep in mind this isn't celibacy, which is a choice. It's not a sexual desire disorder. It's just kind of a natural variation of sexual orientations, just like homosexuality, bisexuality, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So if you're asexual, you may rarely or never have the experience of, say, walking down the street or seeing someone on a dating app and thinking, oh, yeah, like I want to have sex with that person. Mm -hmm. You may similarly if you are asexual, find yourself rarely or never feeling a spark with people that you date, 
even if you really like them or have romantic feelings for them. So there's a subsection of this orientation called demisexuality. And that is what I was describing earlier, where they feel sexual attraction only after developing a close emotional bond. Mm-hmm. So in that instance, you can imagine, okay, you go on a first date, you don't know this person, you don't have a bond yet. If you are demisexual, you're not going to feel a spark right. right? until further down the line. Or if you're asexual in the, in the sense of not feeling attraction ever to another individual, then you just may not feel a sexual spark. You may feel a romantic spark. There are people who are asexual, but not aromantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's possible just you may not feel one if that's your orientation. Mm-hmm. I imagine that would be very helpful to know. So again, it's like lining up your expectations with reality, right? It's like if, if you're just not oriented in that direction, but you keep trying to... to find that, mm-hmm. it's going to be very frustrating. Yes. So what would you suggest that folks who think this might be part of what's up or, or what's going on for them, what do you suggest that they do? Yeah. So a few things. The best way to really determine whether this orientation applies to you is to read the stories of other asexuals. For a lot of people, it's kind of a, a more newly defined orientation. I think mm-hmm. it was only within the last 20 years that people started to put words to this experience. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of, I think society in general, but a lot of individuals are still wrapping their head around what it really looks like. Right. Yeah. Right? So reading stories of other asexuals is great. And you can do that. There are a bunch of wonderful online ace communities that, through sites like Avon. We'll link to them in the show notes. An ace community is asexual community? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, that's the... What's that called? Moniker? Shortened? Nickname? Sure. <laughs> totally blank on this word right now. Yeah, I'll go with that one. <laughs> I, um, yeah, so really, I mean, just learning about asexuality and coming uh, to know your own orientation is a, the first step, mm-hmm. right? The second is to develop a dating approach that honors your sexuality, Okay, so after getting clearer about what your identity is, you're going to want to adjust your dating strategy accordingly. Mm-hmm. And so maybe for you, a happy dating life looks like dating, looking for a committed long-term relationship because you are asexual but not aromantic, right? And you're just transparent with people when you're dating about that orientation, Um, A lot of ACE uh, individuals are in very happy, long-term committed relationships. And, you know, there's a lot of other options. Maybe uh, your dating life, once you've come to terms with what your identity is, looks like focusing on platonic connections and not dating. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it looks like, you know, you're mainly practicing solo sex or celibacy, Mm -hmm. right? There's a huge wide range and you get to choose. Beautiful. I love kind of opening the, the, I don't know, opening the scope to like, you really get to design how you want it to be. That really works for you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to fit into any particular box that you might think it's supposed to look like. That's right. Okay. So number three, mm-hmm. dating anxiety. Yes. This is one that we talk about a lot. I'm sure there's a lot we could talk about here, but give us the, give us the overview. What are some of the tells here? Yeah, so some of the tells are that you 
when you're in a dating interaction, you feel so nervous that you clam up or maybe talk incessantly. Perhaps you blush or tremble. Maybe your mind goes blank or you sweat, right? So all of these different sort of physical signs and cognitive signs that you're just really, really anxious. Mm-hmm. Another one might be if you feel terrified, you're going to make a fool of yourself or be rejected. Ask someone out, if you go on a date, if you approach somebody. Yeah. And then lastly, you obsess about all the things you, quote, did wrong after a dating interaction. Hard to feel a spark when all of that anxiety is going on in your system. You are going right Right where I'm going, Josh. Yeah. You, same brain. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's talk like a fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. right? Before we do another spicy question for you, Josh, mm-hmm. who is your celebrity crush? Um, romantic celebrity crush? Yes. Sexual celebrity crush? I was going to say sexual and then I stopped myself. <laughs> you know, let's just call it like it is here. Um, psh, I don't know if I have one. I was going to say Jacob Collier, but he's my musical crush. Um, I love that you are really having to think hard about this. (laughs) Makes me feel very secure. I don't know. I mean, Alison Brie from Community is the first person who's popping into my mind right now. Great. I haven't really thought about it. Okay. So Alison Brie. Okay. So we're going to imagine, Josh. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Nervous already. (laughs) That you are running from a tiger. Yes. Okay. And as you're running, Mm -hmm. Alison Brie appears. (laughs) She's going to save me from the tiger. (laughs) No, she is not. She's running alongside you and she's hitting on you hard. Very confusing behavior from her, but okay. <laughs> Read the room, else. <laughs> and she's like, she's like propositioning you. She's like, she wants to have sex right now. Okay. Okay. What do you say? Uh, no. Hello. <laughs> There's a tiger. Yep. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and I'm concerned about your uh, self-preservation instincts. <laughs> Very good. And do you think? You would feel turned on. No. Yeah. 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 No, I do not think I would feel turned on. No, of course not. <laughs> and most people are going to say no, not yeah. likely. Yeah. Um, because from a biological perspective, when we feel threatened, our nervous system turns off the biological drives that are not going to keep us safe. And that includes the impulse to have sex. Mm-hmm. Right. So kind of an extreme example, but let's come back to dating Mm -hmm. and let's say your nervous system gets into at least a mild or moderate fight fight or freeze experience on a date. Guess what's going to get turned off? Attraction. Attraction. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, again, this isn't necessarily going to look like you're actually physically running Right. But it might look like your mind goes blank Mm -hmm. or you're unable to flirt or make Mm -hmm. eye contact. Yeah. So shall we talk about how to address this? Let's do it. Okay. Number one, if you have access to it, get therapy. Mm -hmm. Right. So crippling anxiety on dates can indicate that you're struggling with a social anxiety disorder. And working with a dating or social anxiety therapist can help you build confidence and reduce your anxiety enough to access that spark. Mm -hmm. That's number one. 
Number two, you're going to want to balance challenge with soothing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is the kind of one of the main approaches that we hold when we're helping clients with dating anxiety, social anxiety. You have to challenge yourself, but you also have to soothe your system when you feel anxious. Right. And you have to toggle between those two in order to slowly expand your comfort zone. So one way that you can do this is through exposure therapy. We're going to link you to an article about that in the show notes. Hopefully that's something that you do with the guidance of a really great social anxiety therapist. The other thing I want to point you to is listening to our first episode, You're Not Crazy Dating is Hard, because that gives more tips on how to balance challenge with soothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like I'm picturing getting down from like your anxiety is like a 10 getting it down to like maybe a four. Not that for, I think for all of us, when we're on a first date, it's normal to have some anxiety, some nerves, but it's small enough that we can be present to that sense of attraction, turn on, spark. Mm-hmm. And it may be like a little bit of nerves is, it contributes to that, but at a manageable level. Right. Rather than so much that it just blows you out of the water. Absolutely. Yeah, and slight tangent from that, you know, there's some research that shows that when people appear nervous on a date, they're actually seen as more attractive. Yeah. I love that research. Yeah. So interesting. So we, again, want to get you to a place where it's manageable. We don't need to get rid of it. Mm -mm. Perfect. Okay. Number four. Number four. Number four. Unrealistic standards. Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) Tell me more. Will you tell you the tells? Tell me the tells. Okay, so this one might be operating for you if you always seem to find something you don't like about dates, even if you start off really excited about them. Mm. Another is you tend to be hard on yourself and those around you. Mm -hmm. And a third is when you ask your trusted loved ones to be honest with you about what they think might be getting in the way of you finding a happy relationship, they say, you might be too picky. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it's like, oh, they seemed great. And then we went on the date and they had this weird thing. They talked too much with their hands. Right, right. Or they they were shorter than I was expecting. Right. Or things like that. Right. So like some little nitpicky. It's like, okay, that doesn't, how important is that really to what you're looking for? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So you might, if this is operating for you, you might have a very fixed picture of what your ideal mate looks like. One that is so specific, it disqualifies 99.9% of your suitors. Mm -hmm. This is going to, I think, come from a lot of different places. Like I think for some people, there's family or cultural pressures. Mm -hmm. I think it can be a feature of avoidant attachment, which we'll talk about in a moment. Either way, a really long list of must-haves is going to set you up to disengage just as you're describing, Josh, as soon as somebody doesn't tick a very particular box, right? Now, I want us to talk about standards because I'm sure somebody out there is thinking, well, what's wrong with having standards, Mm -hmm. right? And I want to just emphasize here, like having standards is good. Mm -hmm. We work with some people who come in and they do not know what they want or they didn't have great relationships in the past, so they don't expect a lot. We have to work with them on raising their standards. Mm -hmm. And for some people, the standards are unrealistic. And those are not our friends, the unrealistic Mm -hmm. standards. Mm -hmm. So 
this is, you know, kind of tying to the concept of maximizers. So maximizers are people who are like always trying to optimize. They're doing as much research as possible in order to try and find the very best option. Mm-hmm versus satisficers who will look at a few choices and they do uh, have some standards, but once they find something that seems like a like pretty good option, they just go with that mm-hmm. um, because they know that continuing to look will sap the joy, right? And give them a bunch of points of reference to compare against, which will leave them unhappy in the end. Right. So in terms of, of dating, some people are maximizers. They're always looking for, well, maybe there's an even better partner out there. Mm-hmm. And so that long list of unrealistic standards can be part of that maximizer mentality, which can, I think, be a little sneaky because it almost seems like, well, I, you're just, you're doing what you need to do to get the best. And yet, does that exist? Mm-hmm. And is that taking from you, you know, the op- possibility of, of, having something that is good enough to start and wonderful over time. Right. Yeah. It's, is the, is the cost of waiting for that mythical person who meets every single one of your high standards worth, you know, missing out on a a meaningful, satisfying relationship now. Right. So is, is the answer here to, set realistic standards and use those. And I imagine that part of the challenge for folks may be, well, how do I know what's realistic versus unrealistic? Yes, absolutely. So I want to sort of remind people of our what to look for in a long-term partner episode. Mm -hmm. Okay. Part of what we review in there is that human beings are generally pretty terrible at identifying what they need in a partner, mm-hmm. okay? And the research that we looked at showed that a lot of people will look for very quickly identifiable traits like height or a particular career or race. And in the, none of those things tend to correlate to long-term happiness success. So really looking more at some of the more values-based traits, more growth-oriented traits, that's going to be what's really important. So coming back to your question, how do people know what's realistic? I want you to start with that episode, okay? That will give you a sense of what's realistic. And I want you to use our what to look for in a partner free guide. And the process in there is going to walk you through writing your list down. It's very possible you've already done this, but maybe it's all just kind of in your mind, uh, in which case it's going to be really helpful to write it all down, that very long list. And then you're going to reprioritize it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to reprioritize it in terms of requirements, strong desires, and nice-to-haves. And then hopefully when you've repri- reprioritized and used some of the thought-provoking questions we have in that guide to figure out which list a trait should be on, your must-haves will be a, a sh- small subsection of your list. Mm-hmm. So you're going from maybe filtering people according to 30 things Mm -hmm. down to five. Right. And then once you have that reprioritized list, use it to make decisions about who to swipe on and who to go on dates with. The idea being go on dates with people who meet the must-haves list. Okay. Keep going on dates with them until there is no spark over multiple dates. 
right? Or you find a, a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so far we've got the sex in the city fallacy, uh, asexuality, dating anxiety, and unrealistic standards. Mm-hmm. And you just foreshadowed about avoidant attachment. So why don't we go there next? Right. So what are some of the tells for avoidant e- attachment? Yes. Okay, so the tells might be things like you pride yourself on being self-reliant or identify as a lone wolf. Mm-hmm. You're uncomfortable around people who seem emotional or needy. Mm-hmm. You secretly keep a running list of your partner's flaws when you're in relationship. Mm. Uh, or you never seem to get past a certain level of commitment or closeness. Mm-hmm. So... An avoidant attachment style refers to a style of relating characterized by avoiding closeness. And avoidantly attached folks tend to have a really strong sense of independence and they feel can feel very overwhelmed by emotional intimacy, right? So often this is an attachment style that develops after an individual's emotional needs are ignored or dismissed or criticized in a really formative relationship. Yeah. And this doesn't mean that these folks don't want closeness. Right. Don't want a close relationship, close romantic relationship, just that they have learned in the past that it's dangerous or that they do not expect to get certain needs met. And so there's a very adaptive attachment style. Yes. Based on what they've been through. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think it can feel like a confusing experience from the inside where they do on one level want relationship, want closeness. And on another, as you're saying, feel scared. Don't want it because Mm -hmm. they don't want to have the same experience all over again. Mm -hmm. I imagine we could do a whole podcast episode about avoidant attachment and how to address it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm curious for the short version for today, how would you suggest folks address this? Yeah. Particularly when it comes to the spark. Right. Yeah. Well, and let me clarify how this connects to the spark. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, avoidant attachment can manifest as that really long list of unrealistic standards mm-hmm. that we described earlier. Right. So that can eliminate relationships where a spark might develop over time with a little patience, sort of eliminates those quickly. Yeah. The other way that avoidant attachment can manifest in dating around a spark is just kind of like not feeling much for anyone mm-hmm. or being really slow to warm because of an attachment, a big part of that style is dissociation. So separating from one's emotions and attachment needs. That means that you may actually have feelings for someone, but not always be able to feel them because you learned in a past relationship to separate from those feelings. Okay. So, In terms of how to address it, number one, develop secure attachment. You know, your attachment style is malleable. Mm -hmm. That's the good news. Uh, You can learn how to feel more comfortable with intimacy over time, and that will increase the chances of you feeling a spark on dates. Mm -hmm. We do have an episode on how to develop more secure attachment. Um, We will link to that episode in the show notes. And another couple of things that you can do is, you know, identify your partner's strengths. So when you're dating, your mind, because of that style, is going to look for what is wrong in your partner. And so you're going to want to counter that by consciously looking for what you like and keeping a running list of their strengths. Mm. 
And then lastly, if you're avoidantly attached and struggle to feel a spark, I want to encourage you to go on multiple dates Mm -hmm. with each person, unless there's a really clear deal breaker. Okay. Because you may be slow to warm, I want you to stop pressuring yourself to feel strongly about someone after just one date. Right. And then just plan on going on more than one date as needed to confirm that no spark is present over time, remaining open to the idea that that attraction may emerge once you've started to feel enough trust with that person and your system allows you to feel more of that desire for them. Mm. I love the way that you are inviting folks to kind of take the pressure off themselves a little bit, that it's okay to give yourself space to to not feel something at first. And that's okay and normal. And that you allow yourself that space, you'll discover whether or not there's something there. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I do recommend if you're going to take that strategy, be transparent about it with the people that you're dating. Because I think for some people who maybe are more anxiously attached or just have a different relationship to the spark, they misinterpret a slow to warm relationship as this person's not interested in me. Mm, yeah. And so I think it's really good to give your your dates a heads up of like, I want you to know I'm really excited to get to know you. I tend to be slow to warm and that's not about you, but I, I just want you to be aware that it may feel like there's a little bit of a slow pace but as long as I'm asking you out on more dates, I want you to know, I, like, I'm interested in you. And thank you so much for any patience that you can give around. I, I may just take a, may take a moment mm. for me to warm up fully. I love that. Very, very considerate and very, like, inviting the person closer, actually, mm-hmm. in sharing what works for you and, and what you need. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So that's avoidant attachment. Yes, it is. In a nutshell. (laughs) Tied it up with a bow. We're done. (laughs) Nothing more to say there. I'm kidding, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what we'll go through through today. So number six. Yes. Number six out of seven. There are two more we want to get to today. An ineffective dating strategy. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me more. (laughs) I like how you say that like it's a mystery. Ooh. (laughs) Okay, so the tell for an ineffective dating strategy is you don't know what you're looking for in a partner Mm -hmm. or you only seem to get on dates with people who are just like really clearly not a good fit on a lot of levels. Mm. Or... (laughs) Keep going. Yeah. You say yes to anyone who seems interested because your options seem scarce. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be hard to feel a spark if you're just ending up on dates with people who are just like wildly not even close to what you are looking for. That's right. Yeah. And I, I especially have compassion for that last one you named around saying yes to people who you're not really that interested in out of the worry that there's not a lot of options out there. Yes. I think that's an easy place to go when we're dating, right? It seems like oh, there's not, not much out there for me. Maybe you have some worries about your desirability as a partner and, your attractiveness and it's it's very easy to get to that place but then it's very frustrating as well because mm-hmm. uh, you're really not even in the ballpark of the kind of experiences you're really wanting right absolutely yeah so a dating strategy let's just clarify what we even mean by dating strategy i think that might be helpful 
Yeah, it's, that's our lingo. We're, we're just like, oh yeah, dating strategy, dating of course. Strategy. Yeah, what, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> so a dating strategy is simply your approach to finding, connecting with, and dating potential mates. Okay. So it can include things like, oh, I'm going to be focusing on online dating or, oh, I'm going to do a mixture of online dating and meeting people in real life. Within those spaces, your, it's your strategy around how you're putting yourself out there, what you're communicating to potential mates, um, where you're going on dates, all of these sorts of things. So just to clarify, it's not your strategy for manipulating people into dating you. <laughs> yes. Not what we're talking about here. <laughs> You'll need to listen to a pickup artistry a podcast. Different podcast. <laughs> yeah, just how, how are you intentionally approaching dating in a way that uh, you're, you're engaging in a ways that are going to give you good possibilities for meeting people who might be a good fit for you? That's right. So if you're not dating people you're excited about, your strategy may be off, right? Mm -hmm. For example, you may not know what you're looking for. Maybe you haven't had a lot of experience or you really just haven't thought it through um, ever intentionally. So that might set you up to date people just because they're available or a fit um, in terms of the picture of the dateable person you've learned from your family or culture or popular media. And then you're getting on dates and they're nothing like what you want. So that's one piece. Another might be, you know, dating strategy is about where you go to, to meet other singles. Maybe you're going to settings where you're not likely to meet the t type of person you're going to spark with. Right? Maybe you're going to bars, for example, when you're actually more attracted to quiet, introverted humans who are not going to love bars. You mean they're not out, out at the bar uh, <laughs> looking to pick up people <laughs> most nights? <laughs> no. Uh, so poor dating strategy can also include struggling to communicate what you're looking for clearly in a way that attracts the kind of person that you're going to spark with. Mm -hmm. So for example, I see this a lot on profiles online I think that people will say things like, I love to have fun and laugh. And, you know, I'm looking forward to just having something casual. I'm open to something more developing, but just as long as you like buy me tacos, right? Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not coming off as too demeaning. It's just um, what I'm trying to get across here is like people will write things in their profiles where it's supposed to come off kind of like I'm easygoing, fun loving. Mm -hmm without really claiming that they're looking for something real. Right. It's like that might be a perfect profile for somebody who is really like, oh, I'm just looking for whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah, cool. Uh, but for someone who is looking for long-term relationship, that's really what they're craving. It's not a match. You're going to end up going on dates with people who are looking for that casual, fun-loving person rather than the fun-loving long-term relationship person that you are. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So should we talk about how to address this? There's a, there's a solution? <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, let's go. That's the dating coach. <laughs> specializing Is there in any possible strategy. way in <laughs> what? to improve our dating strategy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So one way to address this is to clarify what you're looking for mm -hmm. in a partner. Yep. Again, use our what to look 
or any partner free guide to get a clearer sense of your ideal mate. That is the foundation of your dating strategy. It's like if you don't know what you're looking for, how are you going to know where to find it and if you found it? Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. So once you're clear, uh, I'm going to invite you to think like your ideal mate. Okay. When you're deciding where to go to meet a potential mate, how to write your profile, what apps to be on, put yourself in your hypothetical ideal mate's shoes. Where are they spending time? What kind of profile copy and pictures would excite them? Right. If you've identified, okay, yeah, I'm looking for a, you know, an introverted person who is artsy and loves cats, then you're maybe going to want to include a profile picture with you and your cat, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you with a book, mm-hmm. right? You know, you don't need to be a different person, but you're highlighting the things that you imagine they would respond really well to. Right. I love that. And then the last piece around improving dating strategy to improve the spark, I want you to think about really filtering your potential mates. Now that you're clear on what your deal breakers are, don't be afraid to say no to matches that don't fit your list of requirements so that you're not going on these dates where you're like, this person is really just not someone I want to date. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be especially true for you if you were saying yes to most or all of your matches previously out of that sense of scarcity. This is less true for people who have the really long list and have been a, saying no to most people for a long time. Right. Yeah. And I'll just add that your dating strategy, if, if, if you're in that camp of someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience dating yet, and you're not quite sure what you're looking for, my invitation is to let this be iterative. Let this be something that you experiment with, right? You kind of have a hypothesis. You start with, oh, I think I'm looking for somebody who's XYZ. And then you're going to go on some dates. You're going to try some things. You're going to discover, oh, I really loved this thing about that person that really worked for me. This other thing I realized isn't that important or, uh, you know, I don't really care about that. Yeah. And so you're going to, you're going to get more information over time. That's perfect. That's exactly how it's going to work. Yes. Uh, you, you're not, this isn't something that you just kind of are born knowing and just spills out of your head fully formed. Uh, so just to take the pressure down a little bit, this is something that you'll develop over time. Yes. Beautiful point. Yeah, and dating in general is an iterative process. So I yeah. love that you're highlighting that. The other thing that you can hold on to if it's hard to know what you're looking for is to think about non-romantic relationships, mm, right? your friendships, the other kinds of connections you've had where you've felt really seen, uh, seen, supported, and loved. Brilliant. Perfect. Okay, so we are in the home stretch then. We've got one more for you, mm-hmm. which is? The context is a turnoff. <laughs> Bad trombone. <laughs> so the context is a turnoff. Tell me, uh, tell me what are the, some of the tells for this one? Yes, tell me the tell. So the tells are you feel stressed by standard date settings or conversations. Okay. You typically only feel sexual desire under very certain circumstance, circumstances. And or you tend to need things to be just right in order for your walls to come down. Mm-hmm. Yep. You have a sense of where I'm going with this one? I might. <laughs> I might. So part of what I'm talking to talking about here is context in the way that Emily Nagoski talks about. Okay. Author of Come As You Are. That's right. One of our favorite sex educators. 
fantastic book. Check it out. Emily, come on our podcast, please. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> so go on. Context. <laughs> okay. So in her book, uh, Come As You Are, she speaks frequently about the importance of context when it comes to sexual desire. And so context refers to both external circumstances mm-hmm. and your internal state. Mm-hmm. Okay. So on a date, the context is going to include the environment of the date, right? It's going to also include your mindset. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're in a setting that doesn't feel particularly pleasurable, right? Again, if you're that introvert who doesn't love bars, it's going to be hard for you to feel a spark because of that context. Mm-hmm. Yep. Especially if for you, sparking really means sexual desire. Right. Now, let's take another example. Maybe standard first date settings such as, you know, a wine bar uh, or a cafe feels really overwhelming for your highly sensitive system. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. In addition to that, you go on this date after a long day of work, which means your inner state is one of exhaustion and stress. Mm-hmm. And you're going to add to that the interview-like conversational style that comes with a lot of first dates that right. put you more into a performance mode than a relaxed sensual mode. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's not one but three things <laughs> that could be turning your sexual desire off. Yeah. This relates to having sensitive sexual arousal breaks. Mm-hmm. So like driving a car with sensitive brakes, some people do find that even small things in the context can inhibit desire. So things like an unpleasant smell or too much noise or early dating awkwardness or lingering stress from the workday. So in addition to what's called the dual control model, which refers to, you know, having brakes and accelerators in terms of sexual desire, some of us have more sensitive brakes. There's also two different kinds of desire that people experience, which are spontaneous desire and responsive desire. You knew that. Knew it. I was ready. I was ready. <laughs> okay. So, what do you know about responsive and spontaneous desire? Spontaneous desire is the desire that we think of, I think, most often when we think of sexual arousal. It's just like, I want this person. I'm really turned on. It's just there. Let's go. Let's have sex. Hmm? And responsive desire is a kind of desire that uh, shows up when we're in a context. Uh, that is associated with 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 sex, with sexual stimuli, sexually related content that isn't that kind of like out of the blue turn on. But when we're in a context that is conducive to or or, or stimulates our our sexual desire, we experience more desire. Yes, beautifully put. Yes. So most people do experience both spontaneous and responsive desire. And there's a subsection of the population that only experiences responsive desire, mm-hmm. which would mean that it's going to be unusual for you, if, if that is you, to be on a first date and to have just the spontaneous, quote, spark mm-hmm. of, yeah, I'm really wanting to have sex with this person. Right, right. Especially if some of those other th- factors that you mentioned before is a context that is not very sexual for you, your mental context, right, coming out of work does not put you in a place where you're relaxed and and in a sensual place. So there could be all kinds of layers of context and style of desire, responsive desire that might get in the way of experiencing a spark. That's right. 
You got it. Yeah, so for you, if responsive desire is the name of the game, you may need to be, say, not at that busy cafe after work, Mm -hmm. right? You may need to be sitting with a glass of wine or a homemade meal at one of your homes. You may need to be having a really connected conversation so you feel emotionally safe, right? You may need um, to hold hands or connect physically before your body says, oh, yeah, that. (laughs) And just in case you are hearing this and going, oh, but lack of spontaneous desire doesn't sound healthy because I think a lot of people go there because Mm. it's sort of what our society thinks is desire. Right. A good news, responsive desire is associated with greater satisfaction in long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with you. That's right. That's right. We hope, dear listener, if you take anything from this podcast, is there's nothing wrong with you. Shall we talk about how to address number seven, the context is a turnoff? Let's do it. Okay. Number one, go on dates in pleasurable settings. This is one of my favorite approaches to dating. And this, this if, if you just got nothing out of this episode but that, and you just applied that in your life, that'd be great. Because even when you're going on dates that aren't, don't turn into romantic relationships or long-term partnerships, at least you're doing something fun. <laughs> at least you're enjoying yourself in some way. And, and you're creating a context where there's a possibility for the kind of connection chemistry spark that you might be looking for. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you choose more relaxing environments or maybe if just sitting and talking raises your anxiety, instead you suggest an activity like going for a walk or playing a game, right? The more pleasurable the environment and the activity, the more likely you are to feel a spark. And I'll just add, if you have a worry that other people you might be dating aren't going to want to do that, right? It's like, oh, well, most people go on dates at bars and, you know, that's what people are expecting. So that's what I should be doing. Whether or not that's true, I don't even know if that's true, but whether or not that's true, your partner is going to want to do these things with you or at least they're going to be down for it. Even if it's not like their favorite activity, uh, you want somebody who's going to be like, great, let's go for a walk together. Great, let's go have tea together, whatever it might be. So... Uh, I would just say, give yourself permission to lean into these things that you enjoy and invite potential partners into them with you because that's going to be a good signal of whether they're a good long-term partner. Absolutely. It's a great uh, way to qualify your lead. Uh, another thing that you can do to address the context being a turnoff, cultivate a positive mindset before dates. I'm talking about like scheduling dates at a time when you're likely to be relaxed and emotionally present. Okay. So if you're going on a date before or after work, use self-care practices that help you shift out of a work mindset. Things like meditation or exercise. Maybe you take a bath. Maybe you take a nap. Use things like mindful self-compassion to adopt a self-loving attitude. The more you like yourself, the, the easier it's going to be to others. Beautiful. Love that. And then the third way to address the context being a turnoff is get to know what turns you on and off. Mm-hmm. Okay? If you know what hits your sexual breaks, you can choose the settings and activities that are more likely to spark your desire. 
So Emily Nagoski has some great exercises around this in her book, Come As You Are. I definitely recommend reading that and doing some of those exercises more generally, just start to think about past moments of sexual connection that felt really good for you, where your turn on was high, where you felt sparks, and really look at the context. Where were you, right? What was the environment like? What was going on with the relationship? What was going on for you internally? And start to really notice that there are patterns between some of your peak spark moments. Love that. I think I love that a lot, but I really do love it. Yeah, it just makes me think, you know, that I, I knew about myself while dating was like things like cigarette smoke, for example, I'm very sensitive to and have a hard time being around. So that was not a good context for me to go mm-hmm. to a place where people were smoking. That's just not where I was going to be relaxed and kind of available for right. a connection. So noticing what are those things for yourself, as well as I love this piece, and what are the things that are turn ons or that mm-hmm. help you in be in that context? That really works. So that's the seven. That's the seven. So we that's got the seven. sex in the city fallacy. Right. Asexuality. Right. Dating anxiety. Unrealistic standards. Avoidant attachment. Ineffective dating strategies. And the context is a turn off. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yes. And I hope you heard in all of this, dear listener, that... You don't have, some of these are things that are not necessarily in your control. And yet there are a lot of things that you can do in order to take care of yourself around, for example, avoiding attachment. You can change the context. You can adjust your expectations of dating, right? There's so many ways you can empower yourself to have more of that spark experience. Beautiful. Okay. Well, that's all for today. You can find the show notes with links to all the resources we mentioned in this episode at relationshipcenter.com slash podcast. And if you love today's show, go to relationshipcenter.com slash newsletter. We'll send you a short, helpful email once a month with informative articles, silly videos, behind the scenes glimpses and book recommendations and more. Again, that's relationshipcenter.com slash newsletter. Until next time, we We love love you too. Bye. probably good for me to do the thing I'm supposed to do. <laughs> well, only if you do it in that voice. <laughs> and if you love today, sure. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, and if you... <laughs> Go ahead. Did you have a sound to make? Oh, I was just going <laughs> to... I was going to give the lead in for you, so... Oh, great. Do it. Yeah. That's all for today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all for today, folks. <laughs> Well, that's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> okay. For realsies this time. That's all for... T- <laughs> Can't do it seriously now. <laughs> okay.